Good evening, I'm Sharon Dunn, and this is Ideas. Tonight we begin a four-part series written and narrated by David Cayley on the politics of information. Our first program, entitled The Myth of the Free Press, examines the origin and development of the mass media and questions their biases. Next week in Whose News?, our subject will be the unequal information exchange between rich and poor countries and the debate over what can be done about it. Our third program focuses on the way in which ideological considerations shape foreign news coverage. And finally, in the concluding broadcast of the series, we'll investigate the process of news production itself. The Politics of Information, Part 1, The Myth of the Free Press. On August 18th of last year, the Kent Royal Commission on Newspapers made its report to the government. The commissioners made a variety of recommendations, but all of them addressed one central problem, monopoly. With only a handful of exceptions, Canadian cities and towns are now served by only one newspaper. What this means, in effect, is that the newspaper has become a kind of public utility in private hands with its ability to reduce service and increase profits, limited only by the public's willingness to do without a newspaper altogether. This, of course, has been true for years in most Canadian towns, but it has now become the norm in our cities as well. And so the Royal Commission recommended a program of controls on further concentration within the press industry. Divestment, where it judges conflicts of interest to exist, tax incentives to improve the ratio of editorial to advertising content, and advisory committees to represent the public interest in the editorial direction of chain papers. Reaction from owners, publishers, and editors was swift. This is how CBC Radio News covered the story. In newspaper boardrooms across the country, reaction to the Kent Commission report can best be described as disgust. An editorial in the Toronto Globe and Mail calls the Commission's recommendations a veritable idiot's delight of interference in the ownership and operation of the nation's press. The Winnipeg Free Press says, the people who produce papers would find themselves answerable not to their community, not to their owners, but to a powerful government bureaucracy. The question of freedom of the press and the fear of government interference was the most common concern today among editors and publishers. J. Patrick O'Callaghan, the publisher of the Edmonton Journal, a Southern chain paper, says the Kent recommendations are ridiculous and contradictory. I am appalled and dismayed by the whole thing. Uh, it proposes a draconian set of recommendations that turns a free press into a shabby servant of government. The most interesting thing about the publisher's counterattack, aside from its fine rhetorical flourish, was the ground on which it was made, the freedom of the press. It's a simple, stirring story. Publishers stave off massive government interference. But it overlooks, in fact it positively obscures, the Commission's basic argument. That the press industry is mainly constrained by its own economic structure. The free press, as the term was originally used, implied much more than just freedom from state control. It also implied competition the expression of diverse and varied opinion, and the primacy of a philosophical conception of truth very much at odds with the more recent notion that news reporting can and should be. 
objective. The free press may suit today's newspaper proprietors and publishers as a slogan, but as a description, it actually applies to an earlier organization of the press, which has long since given way to the monopolistic and by its own lights objective press of our own day. Tonight's program concerns this transformation of the free press into the mass media. Paul Rutherford, a professor of history at the University of Toronto and the author of The Making of the Canadian Media. One of the things that struck me about both reading the uh, Davy Commission back 10 years ago and then recently reading the Kent Commission is that not only do the publishers but also the journalists still believe in the myth of the free press. My feeling is that they're both wrong. Uh, there is no free press. There hasn't been a free press for a couple of generations now. I believe personally the free press died in the 1920s and that these people are living a myth. If there was any period, and I think there was, in our history when we had a free press, it runs roughly from the middle of the 19th century, as I say, up to just before the Depression, the Depression of the 1930s. What is absolutely essential to have a functioning free press in the classic libertarian theory is to have a number of separate newspapers or separate media outlets, however you define it, with, one could almost say, outrageous opinions, in which news is seconded to opinion, and which are fighting vigorously in a marketplace of ideas. And we had that, roughly speaking, between 1850 and 1930 and we haven't had it since. Now, we had it initially in the 1850s and the 1860s because there were so many newspapers appealing to so many small publics which were supported by various political and, to a lesser extent, clerical and even business patrons. Now, the thing about newspapers in this period is that it didn't cost much to start them or maintain them. They were really small enterprises not a big business, didn't take much money. And that meant that all kinds of people could get into the marketplace of ideas. Uh, Halifax, for instance, in 1864, had eight tri-weekly newspapers. Eight, all reflecting somewhat different opinions, political opinions, opinions with regard to the world outside, opinions about Halifax. Well. This is a very unusual situation in the light of what we now experience, but these newspapers were in no sense mass. They weren't even popular. But they were committed to their versions of truth, and they did select news and bias news and report news in a way in which it supported the views that were expressed on the editorial page. And that, of course, brings us to something that is very significant about a free press generally. The most important offering in a free press is the editorial page, not the news page. In other words, there are two essential preconditions for a free press. Ownership must be based on the desire to disseminate opinion, and those with something to say must be able to acquire the means to say it. Both these conditions began to disappear with the emergence of the advertising-based mass press. James Curran teaches communications at the Central Polytechnic of London. Two crucial changes took place. Um, in the second half of the 19th century, which literally transformed the character of the British press, 
And these changes are all similar to changes which have taken place in the capitalist press throughout the Western world, but in a very extreme form in the case of Britain. Firstly, the uh, rising costs of publishing made it more and more difficult for minority groups to start up papers in the commercial market. Um, and just to give you one example, um, in, uh, in the 1830s, a paper called the Northern Star, which became the second biggest circulation paper in Britain, was started on the basis of a subscription in northern towns, which amounted to less than a thousand pounds. Come uh, a century later, by um, 1918, a comparable paper, a weekly paper like the Sunday Express, required several million pounds before it was established as a profitable paper. And it required the enormous finances of the Beaverbrook Empire to make that possible. The second crucial change in the press during the second half of the 19th century was that whereas some papers have been highly profitable on the basis of the pennies of the buyers, their consumers, without advertising, in the second half of the 19th century, this ceased to be true. So all papers in the commercial market depended upon advertising for um, making a profit. And this was the consequence of two related changes. One, the sharp reduction in the prices at which papers were sold, and secondly, the sharp increase in paper costs. And this effectively meant that what papers were profitable depended upon which papers advertisers backed. And by and large, working-class papers found great difficulty in being profitable because they found it difficult to attract advertising, partly out of political reasons, but partly also because their readers spent less money than more affluent readers and therefore attracted less advertising support. The press was becoming an instrument of mass marketing, and its content was beginning to be shaped not by the opinions of its owners, but by its need to produce audiences for advertisers. When advertising began to pay for the press, a simple transaction between publisher and reader was transformed into a much more complex and mystifying relation. Now the reader who bought a newspaper was himself being bought by an advertiser, but the transaction was unannounced, unobserved, and usually uncomprehended. The emergence of advertising as the sponsor of mass media was part of the sea change overtaking capitalism in the second half of the 19th century. Competitive capitalism, with its free market of unbranded goods, its murderous boom-bust business cycles, and its unmistakable class structure, was beginning its transformation into the system we know today, a system characterized by the management of mass demand. The crucial feature of this change was the mass production of demand for branded goods, and the only way this demand could be reliably created was through mass media, whose ostensible purpose had nothing to do with the mass marketing of goods. Dallas Smythe is a former chairman of the communications department at Simon Fraser University. The whole problem of how you're going to sell the mass-produced output which science and modern technique was making possible became a very urgent question. And so we find that in the 1870s and 1880s, it was pointed out that 
branding, branding of consumer goods was essential and advertising of them was. In this way, the producers of them attached their own names to them and got a measure of monopoly control over the market. And if they could advertise brand X with sufficient appeal, they could create a demand which could be counted on. And this is the history of the successful giant corporations in the consumer goods industries. This required the reshaping of the newspaper and the magazine in the 1880s and 1890s. The principal support of the newspapers until the last quarter of the last century was not advertising. It was contributions from political parties or uh, the contributions from owners who were willing to gamble on the success of the newspaper. An example of the effect of advertising on the press can be seen in the case of what Paul Rutherford calls the People's Journals. These were popular newspapers of the 1880s, which were forced to moderate their radical tone by a need to attract advertisers to help defray their rising costs. Rutherford describes these papers and their fate. To capture the interest, news as entertainment gets marketed in a conscious fashion by the people's journals who use news to grab attention, news as entertainment, capture the fancy of people, involve them, divert them. But these newspapers do reflect opinions. And what they carry forward is the idea of democracy and that there are too many privileged people at the top and the people at the bottom who work hard, who are producing the wealth of the country are not getting a sufficient share of that wealth. And so demands are made for reform in all variety of areas. The People's Journals are very significant in carrying the ball for urban reform in Canada. Uh, they are, for the time, radical newspapers. What happens to the People's Journals after their initial appearance, and they do boom, very rapidly, one of those, the Montreal Star, becomes the largest newspaper in Canada. In the 1890s, it's succeeded by La Presse, which rises to a circulation by the end of the century, up around 50 or 60,000. And these are the largest newspapers in the country. What happens to them is that their initial radical fervor, their outrageousness, dissipates. They become respectable because they are dependent upon advertising revenue, most particularly because they can't depend upon political patronage. And to get more advertising revenue, they have to reach, reach more readers and more what we might call prime consumers. And that does not happen to be the lower class. It is, of course, what we more normally refer to now as the middle-income group. And so they become, as I say, more respectable. And by the 1890s, you find that people's journalism is if it, taming itself. The same market forces which required the people's journals to pull in their horns were also beginning to work towards a decline in competition between newspapers. In the post-World War I period, the rising costs of publishing created a wave of newspaper closings and mergers which dwarf anything that has happened in our own day. The kind of collusion between publishers, of which the Thompson and Southern organizations were recently suspected in the simultaneous closings of the Winnipeg Tribune and the Ottawa Journal, came to be part of the way in which the market was managed. And so, according to Paul Rutherford, the free press died. The size of the marketplace and the expense of running a newspaper, both those things turn journalism into a bigger and bigger business. Uh, 
What happens is that they're faced by a market fact. There are too many competitors in each of the marketplaces. Newspapers fail or get bought out. There is a period from about 1914 to 1921 when roughly 40 daily newspapers die in English Canada. Forty. That's not quite, I think, one-third of the daily newspapers. They disappear in one way or another. They get merged or they just die out. And the market is rationalized. And it is this rationalization of the market beginning in 1914 and going through the 20s that kills the free press. You find situations where newspapers come to agreements. I will remove myself from the morning field if you will remove yourself from the evening field. You can have the suburbs if I have the city core. This kind of agreement. Competition continues. The Toronto Telegram and the Toronto Star fight fiercely in Toronto. I'm not saying it disappears, but it is reduced. As publishers more and more come to believe in the twin gods of profit and stability. They are no longer opinionated gentlemen. They are businessmen, and the business imperative is uppermost. And, and winning battles in the marketplace of ideas is no longer nearly as important as winning battles in the marketplace of goods. Tied into this is the emergence of CP, Canadian press. CP is a version of socialism at the top. It's a cooperative enterprise for the very well-off. It is also a market tool for restricting competition because once it's established, it becomes essential. You have to have, a, most newspapers at least, have to have a CP franchise to make a go of it. But after it's established, and it's effectively established by 1920, a newcomer to a market must go to CP to get it. And the people who decide whether he gets it are his potential competitors. And as you might expect, what happens is the publishers decide amongst themselves that they're going to look very closely at any competitor in an existing established market. CP would look kindly on the emergence of a daily in a market where there was no daily. It would not look kindly on the emergence of a new competitor in an established market. So CP acted as a monopolistic device restricting the marketplace. These and many other devices lead to a decline in competition and with the decline in competition and real diversity, the free press dies. And as I say, it dies in the 1920s. The idea that the free press died in the 1920s is helpful if we want to try and see through the way in which the term may be used today as a sort of rhetorical cosmetic for the monopoly press. Through a kind of historical idealization, we can see a point in the 19th century when the press was competitive, opinionated, and unconstrained by the myth of objectivity. But it may also be misleading to speak without qualification of this phase of organization as simply the free press, because in an absolute sense, the press has never been free. It has always had patrons, and it has always depended on them. First governments, in the era of state-controlled newspapers, then political parties, and finally advertisers. The change from one to the other doesn't necessarily make the press more free. It simply implicates it in a different system of social control. But these changes in the patterns of ownership, patronage, and control are accompanied by changes in the way in which the news is reported and the type of authority which it embodies. In the period during which the press was controlled by the state, it embodied the authority of the state. 
in the period from which we have inherited the classic libertarian theory of the press, the authority of the news derived from the force, vigor, and cogency of the newspaper's editorial opinion. And it was only when the complex of advertising, improved production technique, and changing industrial organization combined to produce the mass press that the idea of objectivity could even appear. Paul Rutherford. The journalists of the 1820s and the 1830s did not look upon the news as objective fact. There wasn't anything like objective fact. There was truth, and there's a difference between truth and fact. Truth is something that is philosophically defined, and it's defined by your doctrine or by your ideology. So that what was fact to a reformer was not necessarily fact to the Tory, never mind to the Irish Catholic or the French Canadian or the Presbyterian or the Orangeman or what have you. Objectivity begins to make sense only in the context of mass production. The collapsing of separate publics into one mass audience requires standardization of the product. And the need for universally intelligible stories requires the segmentation of the social world into simple causes and effects. This leads to what Anthony Smith, a former BBC television producer and the author of a series of books on mass media, calls the error of social causality. At the root of that error of social causality is the concept of the fact, the idea that the world is constituted, can be represented as, can be reconstituted uh, as a collection of facts. Now, the notion that the world consists of facts is a very technologized notion, only a highly an, a technology-obsessed, a technology-founded uh, type of society could develop the notion uh, and be, could be at all happy with the notion that the world consists of facts. Uh, when one looks at the history of the debate about objectivity and the history of the processes of news collection, one can see how the concept of, of fact is a, it's a meretricious con convenience of an industry, of the industry that collects and produces uh, news information. Uh, somehow we have to get away from that idea that there are facts at all that exist beyond the apparatus for reporting them. Uh, beyond the apparatus of reporting, there do not exist facts. There, there exists the world, uh, and the world uh, is not made out of facts. The divorce of fact, one's perception of reality, from one's goals, one's ideology. Paul Rutherford. That emerges in the philosophical realm, generally, in the late 19th century. It is, of course, tied to market realities. It is much easier to market fact than it is, in the end, to market opinion if your intended audience is huge and getting bigger. Because fact can be presented as relevant to everybody. I am not telling you conservative things. I am telling you facts. I am not telling you Catholic things. I am telling you facts. So there's a market basis to this change as well as a philosophical basis. That gets added on to after 1910 with the emergence of new services and especially CP. CP is serving a number of newspapers. Some are liberal, some are conservative. 
Some are newspapers who are appealing to a big city market, some to a province-wide market. Some are appealing to French Catholics, by and large, some to English Protestants. What it has to give these people are facts which are divorced from obvious opinions. They cannot be partisan or party news. It must appear to be objective fact. So these things pile one upon another. And by the 1920s then, at the very time the free press is dying, you have a sort of uniform belief, the part of publishers and journalists, in the need for objective fact, in the need for a newspaper dispensing fact. Newspapers are not utilities of truth, they are utilities of fact, which would have been a hideous, heinous idea to a publisher of the 1850s and 1860s, because he believed, as often we do now, that you cannot divorce fact from ideology, that there are bourgeois facts and there are proletarian facts, uh, that there are business facts and there are working class facts, that what is fact for the Indians is not necessarily fact for the Indian administrator. That's something that more and more of us now believe. That's something that the publisher of the 1850s and the 1860s would have been very much at home with. He wouldn't have been at home with the idea of objective fact as it was defined in the 1920s. The idea of objective news supposes that the world consists of an order of facts which have meaning in themselves. But in supposing this, it actually hides the operation of political power in the definition of what shall be considered news. Because in reality, the meaning of the news is not inherent in an order of facts, but is the negotiated outcome of a contest in which political power is continually exerted. News, in other words, inevitably contains an ideological bias. This brings us to a new point in our discussion. We have already seen how the news changes its character in line with changes taking place in the economic structure of the press. But the character of the press also reflects the dominant ideological frameworks in use at any given time. These, of course, are not something entirely separate from the underlying economic conditions of communications industries, and yet they are distinct phenomena in themselves. Stuart Hall, a professor of sociology at England's Open University, describes the ideological bias of the British press, a description which, in my view, could as well apply to the Canadian case. The effect of total market freedom in Britain is that it is a society in which every single uh, newspaper of national stature is either on the political right or in the political center. There is no paper further left than The Guardian or The Mirror. The Guardian is a liberal paper which has on the whole sometimes supported the Labour Party or Labour government, but certainly no further than that, and patrols very carefully and finally the line between Labour Party policy and any kind of socialism. At the popular level, the Mirror is a paper for working-class readers, but it is, of course, a commercial newspaper, and its political line is kind of centre-left. So the whole mass of the way in which world events, domestic events, international policies, and so on, are constituted by the media in the newspaper world that have the monopoly of the framing of events, that have real ideological power, is that those are perceived in a perspective which is skewed in relation to the spectrum of opinions which exist in the society. 
There's no kind of balance there. Now, let me make clear that this is a different argument from saying that, you know, journalists go out and see things and rush back in and consult their Bibles, their political Bibles, and say, I've got to put a reactionary construction on this. Ideology doesn't work in that conscious way. What I'm talking about is the fact they look at the world and they tend to see it within the frameworks which belong to that spectrum of political ideas. And that is what total autonomy and freedom at the economic market level has delivered us in terms of the dominance of certain political ideological frameworks. So the old notion that there's some indivisible connection between the free market and a genuine uh, reflection of the spectrum of opinions in the society is not proven in the British case. It is a very free press. It is also a politically and ideologically structurally skewed press not because anybody has told it to go in that direction, but because it inclines to where power is. And power, wealth, capital, I mean, those forces which shape the world, which tell other people where to go and what to do, hold or subscribe to definitions of the world which fall on that side of the political spectrum. So that's the sympathetic sort of interconnections between where perfectly free editors and perfectly free market end you up. Journalists often use the term ideology in such a way that it applies only to disagreeable opinions. The right and the left are ideological. The rest of us are just plain folks. Stuart Hall, obviously, is using the term in a much more universal sense. This is how he defines it. In the, in the sort of classical meaning of the term ideology, it's usually thought of in terms of very organized systems of thought. Conservatism is an ideology or communism is an ideology. But I'm using the word in a much broader sense. I'm talking about any of the frameworks which groups of people use in order to understand or define for themselves what's going on. Now, I think those are particular structures. I mean, we, we look out in the world, we think we know what we know, but actually, of course, we are perceiving the events within a particular framework. That framework has limits. There are certain things about it we don't see. There are certain kind of questions we don't ask. But there are certain frameworks which become dominant at a certain period as ways of understanding what's happening. During the early phase of the Cold War, for instance, that notion that the world is divided into two blocks which are implacably opposed to one another and there's kind of good and bad and right and wrong and the shining light and the depths of darkness, etc., as a sort of framework which people bring to interpret events was very powerful. Now, I mean, I th what I mean by that is that, therefore, when you look at the media, you have to ask yourself, what are the dominant frameworks in play in the media at a certain period as the ways in which the media themselves interpret for people outside what is going on in the world and the way in which people themselves receive the information and slot in what they're getting from television into their own frameworks of understanding. And the important points of change for me, therefore, are the moments when ideological frameworks shift, when, for instance, just to give an example from the media, you stop in the British media taking incomes policy and Keynesianism as what economics is about, and you suddenly shift to the framework of monetarism. This happens in England in about the mid-1970s. Of course, it's not an ideological question only. It has to do with economic policy and so on. But the moment a broadcaster stops taking for granted that everybody has as a consensus idea that we ought to have an incomes policy and starts taking for granted that everybody has in their heads the notion that we ought to control the level of the money supply, there's been a shift in explanatory frameworks and people are looking at economic events, policies, and so on within a, different, uh, within a different sort of window frame. 
And that's what I mean by ideology and a shift of ideologies of that kind. Ideology, in Stuart Hall's sense, sets not only the terms of public discussion, but also the limits. He finds this to be particularly true in the case of British broadcasting, where there is a statutory requirement that both public and private broadcasters should provide a treatment of public issues that is balanced and free of opinion. Television stations of either kind are not required, not allowed to be, uh, to hold strong political opinions of any kind. They're supposed simply to reflect the balance and ebb and flow of opinion out there. That's to say they're in a very different position from the newspapers, which are, of course, identified quite openly with particular political philosophies or, uh, or positions. What the television and radio is required to do here is to operate a system of balance and neutrality. And what that means is that on any contentious issue, they must always go for at least two sides of the argument. But of course, balance doesn't only mean the two positions that you're arguing out. It also means what the sort of limits of those positions are. For instance, let me say to you, you have to die, but I mean, would you prefer to die by hanging or being drawn and quartered? Now, you might say there's a kind of balance there between the two choices. But I've defined the limits within which the choices are functioning. So what the way in which ideological structuring happens in the public service type of television or radio program is not so much the overt statement of opinions which have an ideological bias in them, but very much more the underlying way in which the frameworks are drawn and debates are limited to a certain area. Let me give you an illustration. We've had a lot of problems over the last two decades with the influx of people from where I come from, from the Caribbean into Britain, and the relations between blacks and whites have been deteriorating over those two decades. There's a very strong argument which says we ought to send all the blacks back home. Now, uh, because usually people say that's because there are too many of them and the country can't sustain that number. Now, if you constantly frame the problems which arise between blacks and whites in the community in terms of the argument, are there too many of them here, you can say, yes, there are too many of them here. And then the other balancing position is, no, there are not too many of them here. You never get the argument outside of that framework, which changes the terms of reference and asks about a whole range of other problems which don't have to do with numbers at all. It's the setting of the agenda and the establishing of the frameworks within which debates uh, occur. That is the ideological structuring which goes on very much in public service television and radio, which is required not to express directly a, an overt political position. So in other words, put it simply, the frameworks of interpretation which are in dominant use in television and radio tend to be not very much different from those which are to be found in the press. They don't, once again, genuinely reflect the full spread of opinions in the society. The process of news gathering and distribution is shaped by an interlocking set of biases, deriving from the economic structure of the news industry, from the ideological frameworks in use at any given time, and finally, from a source which we have not yet considered, technology. From the papyrus to the direct broadcast satellite, the technical means for the collection and dissemination of information have shaped the very definition of news. During the 1960s, television became the dominant news medium, and this change in the dominant technique of news production brought many others in its wake. Paul Rutherford. Television engages two of our senses rather than one of our senses, the oral and the visual. 
but it's more than that. Television is a medium which is oral, visual, and organized, and that's the part that is so frightening about television. Because it is oral and visual, so many of the consumers of television believe that it is an eyewitness. And here we have an inherent irony. Television appears to fully realize the myth of objectivity. It takes the consumer right to the event. He sees it, doesn't he? He hears it, doesn't he? Now the consumer is himself the reporter. And that's a horrible belief because, of course, what, what the viewer often forgets, even subconsciously forgets, because television undermines his defenses, is that it's organized. The television news is a collective product, and there are all kinds of people organizing what he sees, determining what he or she sees. Television, in other words, is deceptive. It makes the news appear more objective, while it's actually introducing a radical new bias, as a result both of its huge costs and its cumbersome production techniques. The new techniques of television also begin to influence the whole character of the news business, both in terms of its prestige and its profitability. Lewis Lapham, former editor of Harper's Magazine, and now a syndicated columnist in the United States. After 1960, you begin to get a whole new kind of person into the press, people that have been to Harvard and Yale and Princeton, people who see the press as a way to achieve fame, fortune, celebrity, which had not been the notions of the older generation of the newspaper profession. Everything is changing. It, it, it all fits together because you get the techniques of television and you get the more educated, more ambitious uh, class of people going into the media. And at the same time, you have the media becoming a more and more important economic force the, the, the industrial revolution gives way to a knowledge revolution. Information in and of itself becomes a possibly more valuable commodity. In 1920, to go, if you wanted to go to, to the most important dinner party in New York, it might have been with uh, a partner in the Morgan Bank or with some industrialist. By 1960, it is the equivalent is to go to dinner with uh, Mr. Salzberger, who controls the Times, or Mrs. Graham, who controls the Washington Post. Television was pulling people in from outside journalism with different kinds of qualities, show business qualities, if you like. Carmen Cumming, professor of journalism at Carleton University. And therefore, these people had not been through the conditioning mechanism of the newspapers, which I think was a very powerful sort of instrument in the, the pre-television days. If you came into journalism and you aspired, say, to be a political columnist or editorial writer or whatnot, you went through many stages of conditioning and approval before you were entrusted with the, the great jobs of press gallery reporter or editorial writer and so forth. So um, that, that whole structure pre-television produced a kind of predictable uh, journalistic class, I think, and it's quite true that in the late 50s and early 60s you had uh, the, the Patrick Watsons and the René Levesque's uh, coming in from a quite different tradition, much more uh, intellectual, much more, I think, uh, concerned about um, saying what they wanted to say or seeing the world as they wanted to see it. And uh, in, in some cases, 
linking the ability to use the dramatic elements of the new medium well with a genuine activist point of view. The news has always been a storytelling medium, at least in its popular embodiments. But with the emergence of television as a news medium, it became more specifically theatrical. And this effect was not limited just to television, but was felt throughout the mass media. Lewis Lapham. If you've ever read anything in Time or Newsweek about which you knew something, I mean, the, the distinction, I mean, they don't even get close. But again, it they don't get close because they're writing a, 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 a kind of an advertisement for reality. Uh, they're working with bits and pieces of information. Uh, they have very little space, very little time, and uh, they're looking to make quick, easy, uh, dramatic uh, generalization or point or something. And uh, they deal with uh, stock figures. The media, the big media, isn't isn't subtle enough to deal with character. It has to deal with with stock with you know, commedia dell'arte. I mean, we're dealing with. Uh, or medieval morality plays. I mean, you deal with the representative figure, the politician on the rise, uh, the old crook, the ingenue, the author of significance, uh, and so on. These are all kind of stock parts that various people play on the talk shows and in the news. And the people that succeed are the people who understand, uh, and Kissinger, of course, was one of the most brilliant actors that we've had. And he understood exactly what kind of a play it was. So he knew what the media would want to hear. He knew what his lines were supposed to be, and he gave them what they wanted to have. Somebody has to come on the stage and pretend to know what he or she is doing. It's no accident that Reagan is an actor. Uh, Kissinger is an actor. Reagan is an actor. They, the job is becoming increasingly representational in the theatrical sense as opposed to the constitutional sense. Uh, the figure stands there as a representation of uh, uh, democracy. I mean, I mean, Kissinger or Reagan or Haig or somebody might as well put on a robe and a crown of stars and come out and say that they are the wind in terms of what they're saying as opposed to what may or may not be happening in Nicaragua or the Middle East. I mean, the audience wants to believe that history has a human face. They want to believe that the large... All people do that. I mean, that's the point. Now we get back to the bards and the myths and everything. And it comes back to that point. You want to be told a story. I mean, you can't be just to say... Uh, you want to feel that there's some narrative in it. And as the narrative gets more and more com complicated and would take years of unraveling, there becomes uh, what Burkhardt in the 19th century called the terrible simplifications. And what the press, the media purveys are terrible simplifications. But these terrible simplifications work in very different ways for those who want to change society than for those who dominate it. And the social movements of the 1960s had to learn this the hard way. In a book called The Whole World is Watching, author Todd Gitlin 
has studied the interaction between the mass media and the new left and has come to the conclusion that the need to practice politics as the deployment and manipulation of imagery had a deeply distorting effect on the original purposes of the movement. And the story that I tell and the whole world is watching is in large part the story of the overwhelming of that movement of real politics by a movement dominated by the trotting out and, and transformation of images. Um, it was a... Uh, there was a movement that existed uh, for five years before the New York Times discovered it, um, let alone the network news. And all that time it was conducting conferences and organizing demonstrations, but as a larger political fact was not held to exist. The people in that phase of the movement, and I'm talking here roughly 1960 to 65, had a conception of politics as essentially face-to-face -face activity, things that people said to each other, politics as conversation, politics as discourse, if you will, politics as, as a way of, of living, um, which was meant to make social transformations in a molecular way. That This was a movement that tried to create a kind of hum under the surface of American politics and to have an effect at a deep level. But when, this, when the movement became uh, involved in the, the real workings of politics, when it set out really to do something about the war in Vietnam, it propelled itself, and virtually of necessity, into this other arena in which you had to deploy media images. The sense was that there was no more time for that slow, patient, face-to-face, -face, molecular kind of organizing. The country wasn't attuned to it. That would take too long. And so the movement willy-nilly was propelled into this other domain in which, uh, all the, uh, in which politics had to be done in a streamlined, stripped-down, dramatic, theatrical fashion. The New Left was operating in what Todd Gitlin describes as a floodlit social terrain. It was, in a literal sense, staging a revolution. And in the same sense that Lewis Lapham can describe Time magazine as an advertisement for reality, Abby Hoffman could speak of himself in the 1960s as an advertisement for revolution. Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman, among others, were simply... Uh, playing a part in a larger drama. And the nature of that larger drama is that uh, you market yourself, you, uh, that you capitalize on an image, uh, you develop an image, and you then um, uh, trot that image out into the public domain and watch it do its work. This is the, of the essence of advertising, which is the systematic creation of images uh, for the purpose of generating uh, a behavior on the part, namely buying, on the part of people who have no other information or no larger, no deeper uh, familiarity. It's a thin political culture that we're talking about. And in such a situation, it was, uh, I suppose, virtually inevitable that the movement would be uh, contaminated by this. I want to make one more point, that the movement was always in, a, in an odd relation to popular culture. Uh, unlike traditions uh, in European countries and perhaps in Canada, uh, where there is a larger political culture of the left, which includes not only its political thinkers, and, but its newspapers, its uh, traditional songs, its traditional holidays, its traditional demonstrations and picnics, its traditional 
uh, worker education clubs and so on. The American movement was coming out of a political culture which was thin. And in such a situation, it really aligned itself to a, to a heavy degree with American popular culture across the board. This was a generation, as, uh, as Godard had the wit to see, of Marx and Coca-Cola. This was the political generation uh, of um, popular songs that saw its identity expressed through popular music, uh, maybe more than anywhere else. And in such a situation, it's hard to see how it could have worked out an autonomous culture. This was a culture that was, in a strong sense, parasitic on the larger commercial culture, which is saturated with sales, is saturated with image. The end result of this symbiotic relationship between media and movement was that the media, not the movement, set the political agenda. Because of the convention that what advances the story is news and not what explains it, in a sense, movements, in order, once they get trapped in this loop, they're in a double or nothing situation, or so they feel, so they are tempted to feel. If 100,000 demonstrators made news last year, there have to be 200,000 this year or the event is no longer newsworthy. If someone burned a draft card last year in order to make a position broadcast through media, then somebody feels that he or she is going to have to burn a building next year in order to get on the national agenda in an equivalent way. And the same thing is true of flamboyance. If you could get 30 seconds on the evening news with a with a gesture last year, uh, next year it will take a more flamboyant gesture. So there is that sense that you have to keep upping the ante. And in a situation like that, the leaders and actions that come to the fore, in a sense, are out of central casting. They are artificially flamboyant. Their political identity bears no organic relation to the real political situation, but is a a, a back-and-forth refraction of media images. One is doing politics, in a sense, for the cameras, outdoing oneself, um, uh, developing a media career in which... Uh, images are pyramided on images. And in such a situation, leaders who are good at playing those games are, are going to come to the fore. And many people in the movement, out of frustration, uh, out of a sense, uh, and out of, I would say, also uh, ideological immaturity, are going to be tempted, and many will fall, to stand behind those sorts of gestures and to mistake gestures for politics. What's being done is no longer politics as an exercise of freedom. It is simply a resignation. Uh, it really, it's the end of politics. And politics at that point becomes uh, really a spectator sport in which a few people go out and play demonic roles and other people root for them. Well, that's not politics anymore. That's sports. That's spectacle. The mass media were able to define, direct, and ultimately destroy the political existence of the American New Left. This is a testament both to their monopoly of the effective means of communication and to the persuasive power of their choice of imagery. The New Left was partly undone by its own callowness and political immaturity, 
but it was also the victim of that powerful set of media biases which I have tried to enumerate in this program, economic, technological, and ideological. They all combine in television, with its apparently objective imagery, its economic need to generate a mass audience, and its ideological need to conform to mainstream political ideas. This is a long way from the free press, with its underlying conception that truth is the product of the free competition of ideas and opinion. In some places, plain clothesmen helping make the arrests. A shot of gas, is it? Bottles being thrown here and there by the crowd. The Politics of Information, Part 1, The Myth of the Free Press, was presented by David Cayley, producer Max Allen, technical operations Lorne Talk. The whole world is watching, chance the crowd on the side. Heard on tonight's program were Paul Rutherford, James Curran, Anthony Smith, Stuart Hall, Lewis Lapham, Carmen Cumming, and Todd Gitlin. There's a break in the, in the arrests now. The police seem to be regrouping. And now moving off down Balbo Street and the crowd is running. And the police are chasing them into Jackson, into Grant Park. A reading list for this series is available and includes books and articles by all the people you have heard tonight. Write to Ideas, CBC Radio, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W, 1E6. This, once again, is at the, the corner of Balbo and Michigan Avenue, in the heart of downtown Chicago. There is an odor of tear gas still left in the air here from tear gas shells that have been going off periodically for the last hours. The demonstrators have their own medical corps set up. Volunteers who wear white jackets and bring medical supplies to assist casualties. That's what's happening in the gutter there out front of the Hilton Hotel. The executive producer of Ideas is Geraldine Sherman. I'm Sharon Dunn. Good night. Police reinforcements moving down Balbo Street now. And police moving into the crowd at the corner of Balbo and Michigan. There are, now and then there was another one, a bottle being thrown by the crowd. And the police clearing off the sidewalks in front of the Hilton. And the persistent chanting by the crowd, the whole world is watching.